What up, y'all? Welcome to Queer Walk the Podcast, the insurgent bi-weekly audio syllabus. I am money. Yes, I am money. And it's been a minute since I've been on the mic. And I wanted to come to y'all with this um, special episode, the Nikita Mixtape. So I'm going to go ahead and drop the intro so I can go ahead and get into the episode. Love your chocolate demeanor and your cocoa kisses. I see your flow from a distance. Your vow to sight, my submission. I give you all of me. Wanna make you proud of me. We see the God in all you do. Your light is harmony. Every type, darkest night, brightest light, I'm loving your soul They hate you, replace you, take you, but know that you go Worldwide from every continent, I just want you to jig a little bit Move them hips, feel that bliss, hug your sister, make a fist Don't resist your temptation, you amazing, no limitation My favorite in this matrix, we move by your vibration And that's love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love, I hope you hear that on the daily Cause baby you love I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby, you love, you love. All right, so um, I kept trying to like jump back into, and I won't say jump back because I definitely took the time that I needed to like process and still processing and deal with um, you know, losing Nikita, but I really did try to get back to recording uh several times before this, and I realized that it didn't feel right because I have first of all experienced a significant change in my life, and also that like I kept trying to make Queer Walk what it had been with Nikita, and it just never will be that again. So I decided to do this episode to close out the chapter of Queer Walk um, that Nikita was a part of. For those of y'all who are like OG listeners or maybe um, went back through the archives in um, this grief break that I've been on, y'all know that I started Queer Walk. uh, originally as like a solo podcaster. I was a solo podcaster for about a year and a half before Nikita came on board. Um, And so Queer Walk has gone through changes before. And, you know, I don't do seasons. I can't keep up with seasons. (laughs) I just just, um, label the episodes as I put them out. Um, But there definitely have been other chapters and iterations of Queer Walk. And so I realized that this is Queer Walk going into another chapter. And so, um, you know, like any good writer, I need to add a conclusion (laughs) to this chapter of Queer Walk. Um, So there will be changes to the format of the program. You know, I will uh, get into that when I drop um, the newest episode. Um, I won't do that here because this is the Nikita mixtape. But I hope that y'all still rock with me even through the um, changes to the program. Um, There will not be a word segment, obviously, uh, because Nikita is no longer uh, with us. And um, for the the person who sent me a list of um, replacement co-hosts, a deep and sincere fuck you to you. (laughs) Um, And I mean, that's if you're still listening, because I definitely blocked you um, off all queer walk things. But um, (laughs) I um, 
this, you know, I didn't, we didn't have a, a falling out. And that's why Nikita's not part of the, the podcast. You know, uh, my best friend, not just my co-host, but my best friend died. And so, um, yeah, she will never be replaced. The podcast will just never be the same. I don't seek to replace her. Um, I'm just going to go back to being a solo podcaster. And if y'all love it, y'all love it. So I hope <laughs> y'all stick around. Um, but I'm I'm also not, you know, a radical socialist, black feminist organizer. So I can't give y'all a word segment. <laughs> um, maybe there will be times where like, I'll have guests that'll come in and do that, but definitely nobody is ever replacing Nikita. And if you even insinuate that to me, uh, you might get cussed out or catch some hands. Um, it's on site when I see that person who sent me that email. But <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, so the podcast is obviously going to change, but you know it's still going to be the insurgent biweekly audio syllabus. Yes, it still will be biweekly. I'm back by myself. You know I can only do so much because you know y'all know I'll be having like three jobs at a time so uh it will still be bi-weekly but yeah so that's what's happening (laughs) um for those of y'all who have continued to like send me messages support me um through this grief break I truly deeply appreciate y'all and for the patrons who've continued to rock with me uh, I thank y'all so much because y'all have not just made a uh, queer walk sustained through this time, you know, like paying for SoundCloud, you know, um, all the like overhead stuff that comes with uh, maintaining a podcast. But y'all have also allowed me to uh, finance some really amazing things behind the scenes for queer walk. So uh I've been able to pay someone to start transcribing the podcast, which is something that we've tried to do for years (laughs) with Queer Walk. Um, I was able to contribute to uh, folks' housing funds. Um, You know, like when people post on social media, which has been happening a lot because of the impact of COVID, um, people do like rent funds and stuff. I have been able to contribute to so many of those thanks to y'all who have remained patrons. So I've really been just like redistributing the funds back to the community in this grief break. I was able to contribute to the Women's Prison Book Project, the Sankofa Reproductive Health and Healing Center in Syracuse, um, Harriet's Bookshop here in, uh, in Philadelphia, where I currently am now, the Barbara Smith Karen Circle, because y'all know we love Barbara Smith over here at Queer Walk. Um, Yeah, just uh, a lot of uh, amazing initiatives uh, that I've been able to contribute to. Thanks to y'all still rocking with us. So if you aren't a patron and you would like to become a patron, you can head on over to patreon.com slash queer walk pod POD to continue to fund the podcast and to also continue to um, help fund those initiatives. Now. For this episode, okay, what I really wanted to accomplish with the Nikita mixtape is um, y'all got to know Nikita as like the womanist worker, wordsmith, wizard, or um, what the leftist luminary labor lecturer here on the podcast. But I really wanted y'all to get a taste of Nikita, who was and is one of the greatest organizers and proletariat black feminist theorists of our time, of our generation, definitely. Um, A lot of people have talked about, um, since she passed, about how brilliant she is. Certain Syracusians 
But I want y'all to ask them what they actually listened to and learned from her. Ask them what they did to support that brilliance, you know? Uh, That's how you G-check them. (laughs) And a lot of people have also said that they're, quote unquote, standing on her shoulders. Um, I talked to uh, my friends about this. We have a grief group and um, we talked about this. And that kind of really upset me because uh, are they walking in her path? You know, don't tell me you're standing on her shoulders if you're not walking in her path. Um, Are you following the political teachings that she created and left for us? Um, especially, you know, up here in the Northeast. Um, now I'm not, okay. I feel like I need to pull myself back because I did not want to use this to like fire shots off at all the people I've been angry as fuck at over the last six months. Um, this is, uh, much more about me, you know, framing Nikita as the theorist and organizer she was, but I just had to say that. Um, so because this is the audio syllabus, I'm going to give y'all some episodes that I suggest you revisit that really highlight, um, Nikita Alizé, the organizer and uh, black feminist theorists. So, um, the first episode that I suggest y'all go back to is episode 26. It's called Burger King Breakups. (laughs) Um, and that was Nikita's like, official first episode as my um as my co-host where she had a word segment and her word on that um episode was pronouns and she talked in what I think is a very sharp way as a you know cisgender lesbian about transphobia really and how to like kind of confront people um in these conversations around pronouns that was like over three years ago and I still think that that um, conversation she had on there is just as fresh and relevant today as it was three years ago. The second episode I suggest y'all revisit is episode 40, um, which is called L Words. And on that episode, Nikita breaks down the radical roots of the real Labor Day, May Day, May 1st, um, and the workers' struggles that shaped the way we um, work today. Uh, I know, you know, none of us want to work, but <laughs> but shit used to be a lot um, worse before um, workers organized and rose up and demanded better, right? So I really love that episode. I feel like I've listened to it like 30 times just trying to understand how it is that, uh, first of all, workers got together and changed our work conditions. And then, like, how work is the way it is today. So we have workers to thank for um, um, the weekend. You know, we have we have class struggle movements to thank for that. So I really love that episode and suggest y'all return to that one. And last but not least, uh, episode 70, um, I suggest y'all return to. And episode 70 is called That's Not What We Asked For. And on this episode, Nikita talked about the Amazon worker strike. And when I tell (laughs) y'all, I learned so much listening to her talk about the Amazon worker strike on that episode. I learned so freaking much. And I think it's really important to revisit that um, episode now, um, almost two years into the pandemic, because Amazon has just become that much more of a disgustingly (laughs) capitalist um, and exploitative uh, organization. It has, you know, 
rapidly uh, gentrified and like <laughs> terrorized communities and um, somehow has also become like this family friendly co- commercial company at the same time. And so I just want us to like, you know, stay vigilant. <laughs> uh, Amazon is just as evil as it's always been. No commercial will change that. Um, and it's taken even more money. Um, than before the pandemic. So I suggest returning to that episode to really um, hear what the workers experience of Amazon is. So those three episodes are my suggestions to revisit. Okay, so on this episode in the mixtape, um, I didn't put timestamps in this episode because it's a mixtape, um, but I think it's really easy to follow. So I'm just going to give y'all an outline of it and then y'all can go ahead and get into it. So first, you'll hear a speech Nikita gave at the International Socialist Organization Conference back in 2013. You can actually watch this speech on YouTube. I will put the link to it in the description of this episode. Then you'll hear Nikita's comrade, Howie Hawkins uh, of the Green Party. If his name sounds familiar, it's because he ran as president uh, under the Green Party um, on the Green Party's ticket. You'll hear how we just share a few highlights of Nikita's political career. Uh, And next, you'll hear a mixtape of her speeches at rallies and protests all around the Syracuse area that our homie and loved, loved, loved friend uh, Ben made for Nikita's uh, remembrance ceremony uh, back on May 8th. And last but not least, you'll hear an excerpt of uh, Towards a Strong Green Party Number 5. It's a conversation between Nikita, Angela Walker, also of the Green Party, if her name sounds familiar, because I think she ran as uh, a vice president with Howie uh, last last election cycle, and... um, and Howie. So the three of them in conversation. And I encourage y'all to check out the whole thing. The whole thing is on YouTube. Again, I will put the link in the description. Y'all should watch it. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're here, you already know Nikita is, is dropping gems, but Angela is amazing. I follow her on Twitter. She's like one of my favorite uh, people now and um, also a baddie. Uh, So I think y'all should check it out on YouTube there. Um, And yeah, and and throughout this, I also tried to splice in some of our foolishness that never actually made it into episodes on the podcast. So So, yeah, that's the Nikita mixtape. I hope y'all enjoy it. And um, I hope this leaves y'all, to use a Nikita word, satiated. Until I'm back with a new format in the new chapter of Queer Walk in December. So I will see y'all in December and let's get into it. The Nikita mixtape. Woo! Yes! Okay. So I just want to share a short little anecdote. So I told my mom that I was going to be speaking at the socialism conference. So she was like, What you going to be talking about? And I said, I'm going to be talking about black feminism and intersectionality. And we were on Skype, so I saw her face. She was just like, so I was like, I guess I should probably give a brief explanation of what intersectionality is. And so I was like, basically, I was like, you know, mom, you know, we're black women. We're not, we don't just experience, you know, race or, you know, gender, you know, or class. They're all interlocking oppressions. So she sat there and she was like, duh. 
And then, and so I told another friend, a grad student, uh, he's a colleague, and he was like, so what are you going to be speaking about at this conference? And I was like, black feminism and intersectionality. He was like, who don't know about that? <laughs> and so I, I share these stories because, you know, on one hand, there's people who don't know anything, you know, about black feminism and intersectionality. And then there are some people where it's just, it's like, again, how do you not know what this is? And so I think, I think it's a testament to how serious of an organization ISO is that we are seriously grappling with these issues of oppression, like the disability talks, the transgender talks, and black feminism and intersectionality. So I think that we should give ourselves a hand for really bringing these issues to the fore. Okay, so um, as with any other theoretical and political tradition, uh, black feminism isn't a uniform body of thought. In fact, it's probably more appropriate to say that there are black feminisms, right? Not only are there liberal, postmodern, and radical strands, but we've got womanism, Africana womanism, and many others. So there's a wide range of dynamic. I'm sorry, a little quiet. Closer. You need to oh, closer. Okay. Yeah, closer. Yeah, so there's these different strands of black feminism. And so, again, it's a, a wide range. There's a, it's really a dynamic, you know, sort of political tradition. So, of course, I can't, you know, do it all. So my aim here is to give a very broad overview of some of what I think are important contributions and interventions black feminism makes to Marxism, black liberation, and feminism. And, um, important, and more importantly, to see how these contributions can enhance our understanding and analyses of key struggles today. So how many of y'all have read or heard of Patricia Hill Collins, a red black feminist thought? Okay. So I've read that book probably three or four times, and it wasn't until I got into the ISO where I was like, this is basic superstructure, right? <laughs> and so but, so, but I never realized that Patricia Hill Collins is making, she's using, you know, the Marxist method, you know, to talk about black women's oppression. And so the three issues, so I'm really going to draw from that text, uh, Black Feminist Thought. The three issues I want to focus on here are black women's labor and how it shapes black women's oppression, and a concept uh, Collins calls a controlling image. And I want to um, kind of make an argument against Collins' claims when she, she has this section on rethinking black women's activism, and I kind of want to disrupt that a little bit, problematize. You know how the academics like to say that. <laughs> Um, so again, I think what's really important about um, Patricia Hill Collins is that you know, she's using the Marxist method of analysis to analyze black women's oppression. And so it's, and she starts, of course, with labor. So I just kind of want to go through like, how she uses the basically historical materialism to talk about black women's role and their, you know, our location in the political economy. So since the inception of the country, black women have always, you know, worked outside of the home. And even under slavery, we didn't even have our own homes to work outside of. <laughs> and so the regulatory and exploitive conditions of slavery precluded enslaved blacks from maintaining their own private ho households. And they were, um, so basically we were working in public spheres controlled by white slave owners. And so, you know, Sharon mentioned this sort of the, the bourgeois idea, the cult of true womanhood that was, you know, that went along with white womanhood. So the same way that the elite bourgeois women's labor, uh, women's labor within the private sphere shaped uh, ideas about bourgeois womanhood, so too did black women's labor within the larger, larger political economy of slavery and capitalism. So many enslaved black women were forced to work right alongside black men in plantation fields during slavery. And even after um, emancipation, 
by material circumstances necessitated that black women work outside of their home to support their families. And post-emancipation, uh, black men and women were both largely, largely employed in agricultural work, and many black women were also employed in domestic work. So even though black women made less money than uh, black men, black women made less money in domestic work than uh, black men because of racism, black men were not able to compete with white men for jobs. So even though black women made less, their wage was consistent, right? Okay. And so after post-emancipation, then uh, Patricia Hill Collins goes into um, basically like ur urbanization. And again, so black women are still in, you know, domestic work. And so, th and so this, so black women's role in the economic base creates certain ideas about black women's sexuality, black womanhood, and black motherhood. And this is what Patricia Hill Collins calls a controlling image. And so she identifies four different controlling images that have been used to control and justify black women's labor within, okay, I've already said that. Uh, so uh, this computer is real small, so y'all forgive me. <laughs> and so she talks about four controlling images that we still see play out today. So the first is um, the Jezebel. So during slavery, not only was black women's productive labor exploited, but considering the fact that enslaved black children were necessary for the perpetuation of slavery, black women's reproduct reproductive labor was also exploited. To justify the exploitation of black women's reproductive labor in their bodies, black women were characterized as lascivious Jezebels with insatiable sexual appetites. And then, again, going back to, you know, fast forward to you go to the, uh, the Moynihan Report, and you have, again, this idea of the black matriarch. She's the emasculate, she emasculates her husband, and this is why black families are the way that they are. Black women aren't raising their children right because there's, the, the gender roles aren't being fulfilled in the home. And then, so by the 1960s, you know, 70s and 80s, and of course, you know, we can see it now within you know, the period of late capitalism or neoliberalism, the Jezebel and the matriarch, you know, eventually come together in the post-war period to paint black women as welfare queens. And so what happens, so you, so you have black women who have these, uh, these outrageous sexual appetites, they have, they have a whole bunch of children, and then again, they're bad mothers. So, this is, so then they, we get blamed for, um, social misery, right? And so it's like, well, all they're doing is sucking from the system. And so what's, and this is a really interesting point um, that uh, Dana Davis, she's a black feminist and she does work on uh, welfare. So um, in the 1930s, uh, when one of the new welfare programs was created in 1935, it was aid to dependent children. Uh, this new program was a part of the New Deal. It was implemented to offer assistance to women and children. Unfortunately, not all women and children were eligible to receive the benefits of the program. So according to Dana Davis, um, the aid to dependent children was available to the children of primarily white widows or whose married parents were estranged or incapacitated. Additionally, despite the fact that ADC was a federal program, the federal government gave states discretion to determine its eligibility requirements. Though the eligibility requirements of the ADC did not explicitly exclude black women, the discretionary power given to states allowed many southern states that were dependent on black women's labor to exclude agricultural, agricultural and domestic workers from receiving assistance. So again, it wasn't an explicit, you know, say black women can't get this um, get this assistance, but again, because of our role, you know, because of our, our labor and the, the sort of jobs that we had to take. Again, black families needed, you know, two incomes. And so after um, civil rights agitation, black women were able to 
Access ADC, which by this time had been uh, renamed to Aid to Dependent Families and Children. However, by this time, again, as Sharon pointed out, um, AFDC was seen as increasingly serving under undeserving black women that exacerbated social disorder. Even though by the mid-1960s black women were able to receive public assistance, the controlling images perpetuated by, about black families, um, again, is the, the Morningham Report and this idea of the tangle of um, pathology. So rather than addressing or confronting the systematic oppression and exploitation of black communities in the 1960s, Moynihan pathologized black communities by criticizing their family makeups. The Moynihan Report will play a key role in stoking anti-welfare policy sentiment for decades to come. And so I want to shift gears a little bit. I've been talking about black women and their role in the domestic work. And this is where I have a beef with Patricia Hill Collins. And so there's a point in, um, so she's really trying to think about, uh, she's trying to expand the idea of what we consider activism. And she said because black women had to, um, black, especially black women that were, you know, uh, domestic workers, they had to work, a very, they had to work long hours and they couldn't be involved in, or on regular, um, more formal streams of um, organization and activism. And so this is what she says, the vast majority of black women domestic work workers neither organize for better working conditions nor control their employers by demanding better pay. Actions represented the struggle for institutional, hmm, typo. <laughs> institutional something, some demand. Because they need their job, because they need their job. This, oh, they didn't, um, they didn't um, struggle, she's arguing that they didn't struggle for demands because they, it would have put their jobs in jeopardy. And so, she considers um, survival being a form of resistance. So, this, so yes, uh, rather than risk their jobs, black women uh, made sure to their families were protected. And I, I don't want to get into some sort of postmodern language argument, but I think that what Patricia Hill Collins is talking about is resistance. And I think that this has been a subtle and nuanced resistance has always been a part of uh, black women's um, uh, resistance, like under slavery, like uh, black women would, um, they would exercise reproductive agency and they would induce abortion so they would not have to raise children in, under slavery. And so, and th th again, that's a constrained choice. You don't have, you know, many options. So that's the only way that you can, you know, do resistance. But in, I would just like to push back on the idea that domestic workers didn't organize um, in Sojourning for Freedom. It's a book about black women in the um, Communist uh, Party. Um, Eric McDuffie uh, writes this. In the 1930s and 40s, black communist women like Louise Thompson and Ella Baker were keenly aware of the exploitive working conditions of black domestic workers. Ella Baker wrote an expose called The Bronx Slave Market, which discussed how white housewives would select black domestic workers from street corners to, to do housework. Louise Thompson wrote about, wrote about uh, black domestic workers in an article called Toward a Brighter Dawn about the Bronx slave market. And she said that it was a graphic monument of the bitter exploitation of the most exploited section of the American working population. In addition, um, actually, black women were um, instrumental in the domestic workers union. So black women actually did organize. And so the reason why this is important to me, I'm going back in history to talk about why this is important now, is because I think that there is a tendency in black feminism now, or in just feminisms in general, to where we, do, we talk about the personal is political in a way that it just seems like 
what you do in your individual life is the extent of your politics, right? And so it's not about confronting power. It's not, it's not about confronting structures anymore. And I think that um, we even, and so because we've, been, we've become so mired in that, I think that we even sanitize our own, you know, black feminist heroes. For, I mean, think about Audre Lorde and the work she was doing around self-care. But now it's been morphed into some sort of neoliberal, Ileana Van Zandt, new age kind of trash. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think that we have to, and we can't, um, we can't take away Audre Lorde from her material conditions. Audre Lorde was talking about self-care because she had breast cancer. And this is what a black feminist, Alexis Pauline Gums, says. Audre Lorde's archival papers prove she was denied medical leave, had to turn down prestigious fellowships that required residency in places too cold for her to live during her fight against cancer. The English Department at Hunter, which recently honored Lorde with a conference 20 years after her death, rejected her proposals at the end of her life to teach on a limited res residency basis that would allow her to teach poetry intensive classes for students during warm weather in New York and to live in warmer climates during the winter based on her health needs. And this is what another black feminist says. To ask that we regard Audre Lorde's death as the outcome of a politics and not just a disease is both to invoke Lorde less as an exceptional figure than as a powerfully exemplary one and to direct our attention to how the murderousness of capitalism expresses itself where it is most mundane. That's a material condition. And I think that this is, I think that black feminism really has to get back to that point. Like we have to get back to really talking about you know material conditions and organizing against systems of oppression. And I think that I think we've gone too far in the personal is political to where we're, again we're not challenging structures anymore. And radical feminist, um, and this is I think that I go back to this point because I think that this is especially important in this period of um, neoliberalism. And I want to quote uh, radical uh, black feminist uh, Joy James, not radical as in um, transphobic because we have to make those distinctions. Uh, so, she, so she asked this question of a black cultural feminism. It's kind of a, a feminism that's more concerned with like politics of representation and symbols and not, again, not people's uh, material conditions. And she says, one might ask if a cultural form of black feminism functions as a buffer against revolutionary feminist critiques that cite capitalism and the state as primary obstacles and therefore female advancement. Can cultural black feminism exist as a hybrid heavily invested in political in the political appearances of revolutionary symbolism and representation shaped by ludic feminisms rather than political organizing with non-elites for revolutionary practice? Um, George James wrote that piece in 2001, but I think, especially when we talk about like representations in like, you know, black feminism, I think that there's a, an obsession with folks like Beyonce and Michelle Obama. There's, there's always a, I mean, you can't go a day without hearing about is Beyonce a feminist or analyzing something about Beyonce or Michelle Obama. And so during the Democratic National Convention, um, Michelle Obama used the phrase mom in chief. And so there was a debate between black women and black feminists and white feminists. So white feminists were saying, you know, you've done all these great things. And that's what they said. I didn't say that. And, um, and so, you know, you're accomplished. So why are you reverting back to this idea of mom and chief? And then um, black feminists were saying, well, black women have never had the ability or had the, you know, we've never had the choice to stay at home and raise children. And that's important, but I think what is really telling is that in the same speech, this is what she, this is a, what she says somewhere along down in the speech. This is verbatim, no ellipsis, no cuts or anything like that. Straight from the text. 
So she says, I have seen it in the incredible kindness and warmth that people have shown me and my family, especially our girls. I've seen it in teachers in a near bankrupt, it being like the positive spirit of, a, you, know, you know, all that American patriotism trash. I've seen, it, I've seen it in teachers in a near bankrupt school district who vow to keep teaching without pay. As, and so this, the reason why we have to think about black feminism and intersectionality is, and think about where she's from, Chicago, most of the, te I mean, t uh, teaching is a predominantly female profession. It's a, it's a predominantly uh, woman profession. And then in places like Chicago, it's mostly um, women of color. So why are we not talking about how, why are we not applying a black feminist analysis to issues like that? Why are we talking about the symbolism of you know, what Michelle Obama represents? And I'm not saying that Michelle Obama doesn't experience racism and sexism, but there's too much focus on, you know, this is sort of a, what folks have called a trickle-down feminism. Why aren't we analyzing what's happening, you know, on the ground to uh, black women? And so, how much time do I have? Oh, fine, okay, great. So I wanna talk about two struggles where I think that um, intersectionality um, is really important. And so we've been, so I've, uh, Sharon and I have both been talking about how black women have been pathologized, and I mentioned how black women have been excluded out of um, social services, but I think that in this period of neoliberalism, I think black women are not only being pathologized, but we're being pen penalized and criminalized, right? That's something that we really need to discuss. And so I'm just gonna give you a few examples about, like, these are real stories, like, I didn't even make these up. That, 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 that's how absurd this is. And so there's a, a, a black woman, Raquel Nelson, and her, um, she was walking across the street with her son. She was, jay she was jaywalking, but she was jaywalking with everyone else. And a drunk driver hit her son, and he died. But um, she was actually charged with like some kind of a child neglect, right? And, and, and I'm sure everyone uh, heard about this in 2011. Uh, Kelly Williams, uh, she was charged with falsifying records when she used her father's home address to get her daughter into a better school, right? And this is where we have to think about, you know, the contradictions of capitalism. She's doing the things in the, in the ideology. She's doing what capitalists say that we need to do, you know, go to school, be better, the American dream. But then they penalize her and they criminalize her. And, and so... So with, with this criminalization, and something that's really, really important to me, is that we have to talk about the prison industrial complex. And I, we don't need to do an oppression Olympics, but I think black men's uh, stories, they take up entirely too much space to the point where black women don't get a say, right? And so and there, the, there's, uh, there's, enough, uh, there's enough space in the racial room to deal with everyone's you know, issues. The racial room, that's good. <laughs> um, and so, so there and, and I saw a meme on Facebook, and it was like one of those don't keep comments, like more black men are in prison than, you know, than were in enslavement. And there was, it, that was really big, and on, the, and on the very bottom, it was like, you know, black women with the fastest growing prison population. And, and like that was such a visual representation of the way black women, we just get, we are the footnotes of movements in history, right? And so, what, so there might be more black men in prison, but what the, there's also there's a ripple effect when black women go to prison, especially with children, right? Because black women are the pr primary uh, providers of care for children. So what happens is there's like an, there's a, what's that term? Not the inverse, the, when it's together? Y'all are so smart. <laughs> so there's, there's a parallel relationship between the increase of incarceration of in black women and then black children being caught up in uh, the foster care system. 
And additionally, uh, African-American women suffer health consequences that are largely ignored by mainstream society. The rates of HIV transmission are very high in low-income black communities. African-American women are now the largest growing HIV-positive population, and incarcerated women are overrepresented in in high rates of HIV transmission. And these are things that have to be brought to the surface when we talk about the prison industrial complex. How much time do I have? Okay, I'll just I'll just go ahead and wrap it up. There's a lot of things I didn't talk about, but we, uh, there's did I, did I connect this to intersectionality? Was it too abstract? Okay. So I'm just going to close out with this. So in there's a Audre Lorde poem, and she says at the bottom, she says, "We were never meant to survive." She's talking about black women. And so when I think about Audre Lorde's poem, A Litany for Survival, when she writes, we were never meant to survive, three things come to my mind. One, it is a testament to black women's collective brilliance and resilience that so many of us have been able to survive, although certainly not without damage. On the flip side, I immediately think of how many black women who in fact did not make it and were not able to survive in this you know, oppressive society that we live in. Lastly, the quote, we were never meant to survive, speaks to the brutality and treachery and dehumanization that is capitalism. If, if it is considered an act of political warfare to breathe, to be a sentient human being, that's not, that's not a life that I want to live, right? We can't, we don't, our human experience should be about more than surviving. We should be able to thrive. And in the society of capitalism, we are not able to survive. We are not able to get in touch with our humanity and see the humanity in other people. And so because black women, we've been dehumanized and degraded and that kind of thing, we need to have any kind of serious movement is going to have to put black women, get black women from the margins to the center. And I think that ISO is really on the right track to doing that. Checking the waves, checking the waves. Test, 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 test. Look how low your waves always are. I can't help it. I just... I'm not a loud talker. Talk from your chest. You know You what? can do it. When you get cussed out, you're going to hear it loud and clear. There we go. Lift every Montanique, shut up. <laughs> First, I have to report some sad news. Many of you met an activist here in Syracuse named Nikita Slade when we had her on this live stream, Angela and I, to talk about organizing. And we're really in shock here in Syracuse and around the movement because she died suddenly last week. She was only 32. And she's somebody who was active in our Syracuse Green Party here. She was on the staff of my 2014 campaign for New York governor. She was an advisor on policing and racial justice issues for our presidential campaign. And she was a key leader in Black Lives Matter Syracuse. And she also did a Queer Women of Color podcast that was one of Angela's favorites. She was a union millwright, but to me, she was the best activist I have met from her generation. Um, You know, she was one of the most well-read activists of any generation. I had many conversations with her on social theory and organizing, and she'd read a lot of books that I haven't found anybody else to talk to about. So I'm gonna miss her for those conversations as much as her energy and commitment to the movement. And we were blessed 
for the contributions she made while she was with us. And we're just so sad that uh, she's departed and uh, she had a lot more to give. So, you know, that's the sad news. And uh, Angela and I wrote a little remembrance on the website. If you go there under the updates, you can you can read about it. There's some pictures. There's links to the interviews. I did an interview with her after a Black Lives Matter demonstration here in Syracuse. And you'll see how much she was giving and it's, you know, how sad it is that she's not with us anymore. So that's uh, just sad news to report. I just want to share a short little anecdote. So I told my mom that I was going to be speaking at the socialism conference. So she was like, what you going to be talking about? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to be talking about black feminism and intersectionality. And we were on Skype. So I saw her face. She was just like, so I was like, I guess I should probably give a brief explanation of what intersectionality is. And so I was like, basically, I was like, you know, mom, you know, we're black women. We're not, we don't just experience, you know, race or, you know, gender, you know, or class. They're all interlocking oppressions. So she sat there and she was like, Duh. <laughs> and then, and so I told her, there's barely even a difference between what you see about what's happening in Palestine, right? So, and everyone keeps talking about how black people are violent. No, but when people are being occupied, it is their un inalienable right to resist occupation and dehumanization, right? And so this idea about black on black violence, we, have, we really have to talk about this in terms of white supremacy. Here in Syracuse, it should piss us off that there's monuments to Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, but yet at the same time, you go to the south side and there's cameras all over the, the black part of town, right? There's no jobs, right? So when we talk about black on black violence, we always have to indict white supremacy. It's at the root of it. It's at the top. And you cannot talk about the way black communities are structured and what's going on there without talking about white supremacy, militarization, police brutality, right? That, that, that cannot be missing from the analysis. And only two common counselors voted against the, the, the contract. And they did it on the most timid terms possible. Because what they're saying is, well, the Syracuse police doesn't support a residency requirement. That's very basic, very minimal. And you know the head of the police union said that those counselors are anti-police? And isn't it ironic though that they make us out to be the extremists? 
I've never broken a 14-year-old's arm. I've never shot anybody in the back. I've never sexually assaulted someone. But somehow, the most murderous, barbarous gang that exists, if you say that there's something wrong with that, you're extreme. That is the height of contradiction and yes. hypocrisy. Right. Yes. That's right. you enjoy it because no one else does that's not true people love it you're welcome i am money the kombucha cutie yeah you're welcome because i did help you come up with no that. you didn't i did and anyway i am on one nikita oh you really are yeah, are you really not am. on one you on several <laughs> i really am i've been out of control a little bit lately and this is queer walk the podcast the insurgent bi-weekly audio syllabus I think it would just be such a trash, tragic mess to see something about organizers on TV <laughs> because, like, I don't know. Like, real world, but real world, organizers. But organizers <laughs> yeah. Those confessionals, those confessionals would be so funny. It's like, and she keeps saying she gonna start the Google Doc, but she don't never start the Google Doc. We still been waiting on this email to get out to the listserv. You think they sent it? No. No. We no. Was, we was all supposed to get 200 signatures. This bitch show up with 190. And we said, input the, input the signatures. Oh, yeah, I'm going to scan them. Meanwhile, you know, pre-COVID times, I went to her house, did petitions right under that bitch's bed. Ain't scanned nothing. That's 200 critical signatures. We done lost. Oh my god, it would be so niche. So niche. All right. Well, first, uh I'm so excited uh to be here with two of my uh favorite people. Um so I just want to say um shout out, thank you so much to Howie. Um I feel like um Howie is like I he's somebody who I consider one of my uh one of my organizing mentors. And Angela, in the intro, you mentioned um, that I used to work at the Worker Center of Central New York here in Syracuse. And I feel like another one of my organizing uh, mentors is uh, Rebecca Fuentes. So um, I'm just I'm just going to it's going to be real um, informal. But just there's four there's four different things that I like different categories that I want to talk about when we talk about organizing um, or any kind of uh the different kinds of activities that people can like get involved in. So, and I'm going to save organizing for last. So the first one, I think um, 
that I want to start talking about is advocacy. And I think, and the reason, whenever I talk about this stuff, I think we need to be very clear in our terms. And so like something I do on the podcast is one of the segments that I do, it's just like break down a term or just like an idea. Cause I feel like on the left, there's a lot of terms and I think a lot of us use the same terms, but we don't actually mean the same things when we use these terms. So I'm going to talk about four different terms that I think are important to break down. They're all important, but they're all uh, very different. So the first uh, point where I'll start out is um, advocacy, right? So I'm going to talk about advocacy, mobilizing, um, organizing, and then uh, like direct service. So advocacy is basically that is where you are it's somebody who's doing something on behalf of somebody else right so um like there's a lot of times when um like you can engage like there's a lot of different organizations nonprofits that engage in advocacy i think one of the most popular ways that we see that is in um like lobbying right so it's like and and that there's a role for that, you know, I've done that. But again, it's about, it's a, it's a situation where a person who's not directly impacted is doing something on behalf of um, someone else, right? And it's not, and there's a role for that, but it's not the thing that helps us to build power. So for instance, um, like, again, when you go and you advocate, you know, for a law, like a big like organization or a nonprofit can do that. It doesn't mean, so there's like professional staff who are doing that, but it doesn't mean that the people, people who are directly impacted can be a part of advocacy. But again, that's the main thing. It's where your people are doing something on behalf of somebody else, right? So that's advocacy. I think another important, um, and I'll, I'll be clear, I've done all of this. And again, there's a role for all this. I think another um, thing that people get confused about is um, like direct support or direct service. So that's where, you know, and I think that we're seeing this a lot um, in the midst of COVID, right? So it's unfortunately, you know, because in the past 50, 60 years, the social safety net has been totally decimated and obliterated. You know, there a lot of, there's because the state, you know, we don't have a government that provides for the material needs of people. There's all kinds of charity organizations, charitable organizations. And then I, I know a lot of times, and especially in this current moment, a lot of people are engaged in you know, mutual aid efforts. And so that is where you're meeting the basic material needs of the people um, in your community. Um, now, these things can be, um, tied in with like different efforts. So I'll, I'll, when I talk about organizing, I'll talk about how I've been a part of organizations that have used, um, you know, direct service, right? Cause when you, especially when you're talking about some of the most vulnerable, some of the most oppressed people in society, it's, it's hard to organize when you, when you can't get your basic, you know, material needs met. So that's, that's, you know, that's some of the things that like people get involved in, correct? And the third thing, and I think that this is something that we're particularly good at, um, uh, I think on the the broad, you know, liberal left is mobilizing. And so that's, so mm -hmm. mobilizing is getting people out who 
usually they already agree with you um, in terms of like your values and in terms of like your worldview and in terms of your um, ideology. So like I know for us, just to give a concrete example, if there's some kind, if we're doing some kind of action in Syracuse, if we want to do a protest or we want to do a rally for like uh, BLM Syracuse, Black Lives Matter Syracuse, if we say, hey, you know, we're going to like, over, just to give a real concrete example, uh, we work with the group this really amazing group of young people in Syracuse and a number of different organizations over the summer was a part of the national uprising, right? So there's a really wonderful group, uh, uh, BLMQ's Youth uh, is a group of uh, high schoolers and uh, young college folks. And there's another group called uh, Raja Syracuse. So us, along with them, we put on a 2000 person uh, march. So Again, in the midst of this national uprising, when you know hundreds of thousands, you know, of, and then people, millions of people across the globe were like, you know, what happened to George Floyd and this idea and like the problem of police brutality, where those people poured out, when poured out into the streets. And so it's like because we've done, we've been active in Syracuse for like the past five or six years. People know, okay, when BLM says do something, we know that we can count on those people getting out into the streets. So mobilizing is like people who are usually pretty much on board with what it is, your political ideology or like your, whatever it is that you're protesting or rallying for or against getting those people to do something, right? So that's that's how I would def define and describe mobilizing, right? Again, the left I think is really good at that. And now, for my personal favorite, and I think the most important is organizing. So what, and I think this, so it's a really important to distinguish organizing from mobilizing. So whenever you start talking about organizing, you're talking about getting to, building up a base of people who have enough power to make a real, felt change, right? And so the difference, I think for me, the key difference between organizing is and mobilizing is organizing means that you actually have to effectively persuade people who aren't already in your orbit of your beliefs, of your values. And most importantly, I think another key part about organizing is that, uh, you know, I feel like I'm, it's like I'm I'm about 32 going on 60 or 70. So I I feel like I'm like an old school um like leftist. And so another key part of organizing is like values and principles are important, but it's also about building what is what people organize based on things in their direct material interest. So how does this thing, so why am, I need to build up power so and build up something in concert with others, because that's another key part about organizing. It's always about the collective, right? So when you think about the ruling class, the ruling elite, something that I think somebody, everybody should follow, um, uh, Miriam Kaba, who's just, I think that's one of the, the finest, sharpest organizers. You know, she says, um, you know, the ruling elite has organized resources 
It's like, I don't know about y'all, but I don't, I don't have any kind of trust fund, right? I know we don't come from millions and billions of dollars. So they have organized resources, so we need to have organized people. So everything that we need to do is collective. But as I was saying about your direct self-interest, it's like you have to have a stake. And it's like what, what you're fighting for has to be able, like you, you want to be able to feel that in your life and you people in the community need to feel that change, right? And so again, it's, it's so like I said, it's about building um, power and it's like build, so power is like you, you have the ability to get what it is that you want. And so this is just like base building, like organizing one-on-one. And so whenever you're organizing, you have a very clear target. So who is the person that has the power to give you what you want? And so when I think back on like my um, organizing um, like um, experiences, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give two examples. So when I used to work at the worker center, a lot of one of the issues that we worked a lot around in terms of um, um, it was like play, issues in the workplace was wage theft. So that so wage theft uh, refers to uh, the the unfortunate practice of um, employers um, stealing wages from workers. Now this is not the um, so we're talking about like if you were you work you know, 30 hours, but your employer only gave you 25 hours uh, worth of your paycheck. So I'm not talking about the exploitation um, that that happens to all workers under capitalism, but this is like just blatant, brazen um, theft, right? Not getting, not paying you for all the wages, all the hours that you worked. So whenever we would uh, talk with workers, we would say, um, and again, so we could have, so just to give an example, um, my coworker, Rebecca, like, or I could have called the employer and said, Hey, you know, this worker, you didn't pay this worker, you know, the wages that they were owed. But again, so one of the, the one of the most critical pieces of organizing is that the people who are directly impacted need to be the leaders, right? So there's something that should actually be empowering about um, organizing. And one of the best quotes I ever heard uh, from one of the uh, organizers, one of these trainings that we went to was like, you wanna do something in the way that builds the most power, not in the way that's easiest. So going back to the example, we could have called the employer to be like, hey, you know, one of the staff members of the worker center could have said, hey, you know, you owe this, empl- you owe this worker their money from their stolen wages. But it was like, no. That's not. That's actually not going to be the most empowering for the worker. And usually, in those circumstances, other workers were being shorted their wages. So what we did was we got workers together in a meeting, and then they would come together, write out a demand letter, and say, "These are all the wages that you um, owed me." You know, and this this group of workers, they would give a demand letter. And so again, going back to the target. Who was the person that had the power to give them well what it was that they want? It was the boss. And in, and in that instance, a lot of times we were working with um, farm workers. It was the farm owner. And so again, we could have the easier we could have easily called and said, "Hey, give these workers their money," but that was not the way that that was going to build power for them. And so it was workers collectively came together, 
wrote up their demands, and that's another key part of organizing. There has to be concrete demands. And it's like, you know, we have slogans, and slogans are critical, but that's not the same as, you know, the felt demand. So it was like the demand was, and this is a very simple example, but it's important. So the demand was returned like this X amount of wages to this specific group of workers, right? And so it was easy for like, in a lot of instances, you know, it would be easy for the boss to shoo, you know, just poo-poo one worker. But if, you know, even two workers, and not side note, in terms of like the, the NLRB, um, concerted activity, section seven of the National Labor Relations Board Act says if two workers are working, you know, together to improve conditions in their workplace, you're supposed to not be retaliated against in your workplace. And so again, two workers, but three workers, four workers, five workers, you know, say, hey, you know, exercise, you know, the organized collective power to say, you owe us these wages, then that puts pressure on the boss to give in to the demands. And then another key part about um, organizing is that you always want to be thinking about how to escalate, right? So the first step that they would often do would be, you know, give the demand letter. And again, in these small um, workplaces, the demand letter was usually, um, they were just so used to this uh, vulnerable uh, workforce, not, you know, speaking up that the demand letter was often very successful. But if the demand letter didn't work, then the, again, the group of workers would collectively come together to say, what is the next course of action that we can do to escalate, to exercise our power? Do you know what I, you understand what I mean? And so, I, and so that's a very small um, example, but then, you know, you know, we can broaden it out, right? So like when you start talking about issues around like, you know, Medicare, you know, for all, or when we start talking about the Green New Deal. And so another, you know, thing when we start talking about organizing is we start talking about strategy and tactics, right? And so like the strategy is the overall plan that you're going to use in order to, you know, reach your goal. And then the tactics are the very specific concrete things that you do in order to reach that goal, right? So a tactic is, you know, nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience, strikes, right? You know, boycotts. So it's like all of those specific things, letter writing campaigns, postcards, all of those are small, you know, different tactics in your broader strategy to give you what it is that you want. And so, and again, I think something that is really critical, like I started out by saying, is that, this requires actually being persuasive. And, and another key part about organizing that I think that is really critical is like a key part of those building and organizing is relationship building. And, you know, I understand that, you know, I said I'm about 32 going on 60. So it's like, I'm on social media, but I, I'm not good at it. I don't particularly like it, but I understand that it's important. But I think it's really critical to remind ourselves that screaming at each other online is not the same thing as relationship building, right? And it's like that, and it's like, we have to be able to have effective conversations to actually be persuasive because that is the critical difference 
between organizing and mobilizing. Mobilizing is preaching to the choir. Organizing is actually converting people and bringing new people into the fold, right? So um, on our um, the last episode, we're on a break for um, Queer Walk, but um, one of the things that I talked about, so I was just doing like this breakdown of the election. And so even Howie was talking about like the different constituencies. So, um, you know, white women's vote for Trump went up 2%. Um, black, uh, I think there was, um, you know, there's a huge, there was a sizable increase amongst uh, Latinx voters, sizable increase amongst um, black voters. And so what uh, there was oddly enough, I think AOC had a really good, um, a good quote in, the, in an interview that she did with the New York Times. So it's like, we have to be able to break down and see why certain voters you know, are still, you know, in the throes of like white, re white, uh, right wing reactionary, you know, politics, right? And I think that there's a subset of those voters that can be, you know, that can be won over by speaking to, again, organizing their direct material interests. And so does that mean like I now, you know, we have to exercise a little bit of common sense. I'm not saying you're going to like, you know, when the Proud Boys are marching down the street, you say, hey, I want to talk to you about your self-interest. Those are not the people that I'm talking about. But I think like I'm in the building trades and I think about some of the guys, you know, that I work with. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you know, they they come from and they live in, you know, uh, you know, these decimated rural areas where there's no industry. And so when Trump talks all the, or when he's scapegoating, blaming it on, you know, um, you know, undocumented immigrants, or when he's, you know, making all these like economic promises, you know, the, the left has to be able to respond meaningfully to some of these people. You know what I mean? And so that's what organizing, you know, is all about. So it's like, you know what? It's like, do you want to be crushed under medical debt? Do you want your children to be crushed under the weight of um, college debt? You know what I mean? And so it's like being able to have conversations with people around their direct material interests and being able to convert them to a solidly and explicitly left-wing agenda, right? That is what, that to me is what organizing, you know, is all about. And I could flap, uh, I could bump my gums, you know, about this all day. But I think I'm just gonna um, stop right there. I mean, I listened to your last podcast episode, you know, and the thing is, you know, I was burned out to be honest with you, you know, and I'm, I'm like you when it comes to social media, I engage with it when I have to, but it's exhausting. And listening to everything that you said literally gave me life like yes because it just made sense i think that you know and, and there's a discussion that's happening in the chat about you know how the verb you know the wording around you know something like defund the police should be and you know that you don't want to weaken your message and i think one of the biggest things with us on the left we give up power because we don't want to we don't want to offend anybody we don't want to come off as, you know, come off as as being too strident or whatever. And I think one of the major things that we are also going to have to do on the left 
is stand on the fact that we're leftists and be unapologetic about it and dig our heels in about it. And so you weren't bumping your gums. Everything you said was gems. Can, and you know, it's being received in the chat too. Can I please say something about the defund the police thing? Because you know, all the liberals, Matt Iglesias, his head is gonna explode and all the um, you know professional managerial uh, chattering classes are ready to like explode around the defund the police. So I have like concrete examples of this from Syracuse, right? So, cause everybody is always like, well, the polls say people don't support it. It's like a poll is just, it's just a gauging at a, it's like, it's a metric that's measuring something at a specific time. The goal of a good organizer is to, is to shift the conversation, to shift the narrative and to move people to your side. I'm like, that's such, like, I can't believe that people say that as some kind of like gotcha. And I'm like, and again, going back to Miriam Kaba, cause somebody was like only 33% of black people support defund the police. And so she was like, that's way ahead about where it was when I started doing this work 30 years ago. Like that's what Miriam Kaba said. But here's the thing. So when we were talking to people locally, cause we're part of this broader coalition, uh, uh, the People's Agenda for Policing here in Syracuse. And if you just, and again, this is why it's about relationship building and being able to have conversations. Because when you talk to people, and again, it's about being persuasive. When we talk to people, we don't just say, hey, do you support defund the police? And if they say no, we go on about our business. We have conversations about what, what their relationship to the police is like. And we live, how he knows this, we live in one of the cities with one of the highest concentrations of poverty in the country. So when it, so when you ask people, do you think that the Syracuse Police Department should have 20% of the city's total budget while youth while there's like a youth job program that that was only awarded $70,000 out of a 100 million dollar budget. If you ask people and you talk to people about that, you know what they say, you know what? That's effed up and that's not right. They say that money should be poured into parks and rec. It should be poured into other programming, community centers for the um, for the community and for young people. And it's like, again, it's all about being able to have conversations with people. And so when you say, you know what? The Syracuse Police Department has millions of dollars alone. It's the 20% of the budget of them receiving the the 20% of the overall budget that the Syracuse Police Department receives does not even include the millions of dollars that the city has had to pay out in lawsuits because of the barbarism of the police department. So when you ask people, hey, do you think that, you know, do you want to pay the police to be beating people over the head? Or do you want, you know, you know, or do you as a community should, you know, this is a good opportunity to talk about participatory budgeting. Don't you think that you all should have a say in where the revenue in the city goes? And so again, this is all about, so when so when Matt Iglesias and all the other, you know, professional manager, managerial liberals are blowing a gasket to say, hey, people don't support this. It's like good organizers say, you know, we're up to the challenge to move people in our direction. That that's what organizing is all about. I don't want to work tomorrow. But I'm glad I got a job. <laughs> What's that? Is it universal? Mm -hmm. Universal? Don't get confused. 
I don't want to work tomorrow. But I'm glad I got a job. <laughs> Okay. I'm glad I'm employed. I'm so glad I'm employed. But goddamn, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to go in. No, no. Tell me I got some sick days. <laughs> Tell me I got some sick days. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Tell me I got some sick days. Give me your raise. <laughs> Pay me more. <laughs> Give me some more. <laughs> okay. A bitch wanna go on vacation sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Not even far. I just wanna go to Ithaca. <laughs> Ithaca. A little day trip to Camillus. <laughs> I would love to go to the Green Lakes. <laughs> Be kissed by the sun. Recharge my blackness. <laughs> or maybe, just maybe, I want to sit on my couch and binge watch something on Netflix. Dear white people. Without guilt, I don't want to go nowhere. Damn, I got a shower. Because I got to go to work. I don't want to go to work. No more. When we going to have the socialist revolution? Because I'm tired of waking up and slugging my ass. What's the point of working when I'm broke anyway? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Fuck it, tomorrow I'm taking a sick day. <laughs> this here is my new bottle. Ooh, ooh. The time is only by the lotto. <laughs> Don't take this as my two weeks notice. But I got a glucose guardian. And she gonna take real good care of me. She gonna pay the rent. Pay the bills. Pay the mortgage. National Grid. <laughs> okay. Let's National pay the man. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Pay the tickets on the Chrysler. <laughs> Keep that motherfucking boot off. <laughs> None of this rhymed. It's okay. It's free verse. <laughs> the only boot I fuck with is the Doc Martin. Because <laughs> that's, that's like the most gay boot ever. It is. <laughs>